If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Spring is the season home gardeners plant seeds for the vegetables they hope to harvest from summer to fall. But a team of experts is looking a whole lot further ahead, making extraordinary efforts to keep the world evergreen in the event of some future apocalypse. And they're doing it in a most unusual spot. Seth Doan will report our cover story. Way, way up north, at a place that's so cold trees cannot grow, there's a Garden of Eden of sorts. Where are the seeds coming from? Originally, they were sourced from about 234 different countries, but some of those countries don't even exist anymore, so the seeds outlasted them. Ahead on Sunday morning, we journey to the Arctic, not far from the North Pole, a frozen and unlikely place to safeguard the world's food supply. Alec Baldwin isn't the president, but he plays one on TV. He'll talk about that high-profile role with our Rita Braver. Big plan. It's the impression everyone is talking about. Google, what is ISIS? Have you gotten mostly a positive response? 60 to 75% of the people that encounter me treat me like I was Jonas Salk and I cured <laughs> polio. They walk up to me and go, my God, thank you. Another great retweet. Later on Sunday morning, behind the scenes at SNL with Alec Baldwin. Country singer Willie Nelson has won a devoted following decade after decade. This morning he talks about his life and music with our Bob Schieffer for the record. You know, I just live right up there. Yeah. And Willie Nelson had a party at his Texas ranch the other day. River, take my mind. And 3,000 fans showed up for the music. You think you'll ever retire? What do you want me to quit? All I do is play music and a little golf, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to quit either one of those. On the road again. Ahead on Sunday morning, a visit with Willie Nelson before he goes on the road again. With Mark Strassman, we'll be taking a dive into history, a wartime history found right off our country's coast. Vitally needed tankers are hit, burned, and sunk. Seventy-five years ago, American waters were a battlefront. Within like three weeks of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Germans were beginning to sink ships off the East Coast. Many of these ships were thought lost to the Atlantic until now. Confirming we have a visual on the target. Ahead on Sunday morning, we take a dive into history. Aaron Moriarty has an audience with the queen of suspense, author Mary Higgins Clark. John Blackstone watches the birds, guardians of our vineyards. Steve Hartman offers a true case of how seeing is believing and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
Correspondent Seth Doan has traveled to an ice-cold spot at the very top of the world for our Sunday morning cover story, all about keeping our future food supply evergreen. Up here on this Arctic tundra in Svalbard, Norway, about halfway between Oslo and the North Pole, there are no gardens, no trees. Yet deep beneath this barren surface lies the largest concentration of agricultural diversity anywhere on Earth. You wouldn't imagine that all of the world's seeds would be here. It seems very unlikely, doesn't it? This angular concrete structure seems more modern art museum than seed storage vault. It impresses even before entering. Why keep all of these seeds here? First of all, it's really cold here. Cold <laughs> and the, outside and, and even, even colder, colder inside. inside. And that helps to conserve the seed. American agriculturalist Carrie Fowler this is the cooling system going back into the mountain heads this international effort to safeguard the sources of the world's food supply, one that's designed to outlast any disaster and ultimately all of us. It's very cold back here and the and the rock keeps the cold. Just how cold was clear from this? It really sets the tone here, this <laughs> wall of it, ice. Ice crystals, yes. So let's uh, go quickly. Let's go in. Behind that icy door are racks and racks of boxes in storage at zero degrees. Colombia and Peru, Canada back there. Sent from nearly every country. I like these boxes. These come from North Korea. Wow, the DPRK. They are really sturdy. <laughs> Here, at least, North Korea coexists peacefully with South Korea. No problems that we observe. Detente in deep freeze. Here's my hand is resting on a wheat collection from Mexico. And we've got more than 150,000 different varieties of wheat in this room. Why do you need that much wheat? The most important thing is that it represents everything that wheat can be in the future. So those different varieties have different traits. Maybe one is higher protein and another one is resistant to a particular insect or disease. And we need that collection of traits because we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's coming in the future and we don't know which of those traits will be useful or important. So the idea behind this whole venture is to save all the pieces of the puzzle. All right, go ahead and put that one in there, and you guys stir it up. One piece of that puzzle is the prized possession of the Riccelli family from Des Moines, Iowa. A thin-skinned Italian pepper that's been a part of their family dinners for centuries. I got the seed when I, when I got married, and I got married at 21. The seed was a gift from Teresa Riccelli's mother 71 years ago. Her grandson, Chad Ogilricelli, says the pepper is now a family heirloom. It could be that wedding dress, that diamond ring that's been passed on. Or those things are some of us hold dear to our heart. And this seed is definitely that type of fulfillment with us. The family never found anyone else anywhere with the same pepper. So they asked their local seed bank, Seed Savers Exchange, to help preserve it. John Torgrimson is the director. We represent a lot of amateur gardeners who have saved seeds in their family or in their communities who have entrusted us the, the protection of those seeds. And Svalbard gives us an insurance policy where we can uh, put our seeds there. It belongs to us. We can reclaim them at any time. There are 1,700 seed banks worldwide of varied size and state of repair. But this one in Norway is known as the Doomsday Vault. It's a backup for the whole system, designed to last for thousands of years. So, for instance, when a typhoon tore through this bank in the Philippines, destroying everything inside, all was not lost. Or when war destroyed seed banks in Iraq and Syria, the seeds were safe here. So we protect, yes, against some of the natural disasters, war and civil strife and hurricanes and floods and fires. But we also protect against uh, anemic budgets and budget cuts and stupid human mistakes as well. Cultivating land for agricultural use began about 12 to 15,000 years ago. 
But since industrialization, plant diversity has diminished dramatically, as a handful of big seed sellers control most of what's sold and planted. Since 1900, we've lost more than 75% of our crop diversity. And I just thought enough is enough. We have the technology, we have the smarts, we know how to conserve seed. And so why can't we figure out how to have a facility somewhere that's really safe and where we can save the seeds long term without any dangers? The big question was where to put it. In 2008, that search led Fowler and the Global Crop Diversity Trust here to Svalbard. It's politically stable, cold, and most essentially, remote. Pictures from Carrie Fowler's new book show off Svalbard's rugged beauty. It's a place with more polar bears than people. Folks here carry rifles when leaving town as polar bear protection, and they sled to school. Svalbard also happens to be a spectacular place to catch the northern lights. We are on the edge, that's for sure. The edge of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make 2,000 liter beer per batch. Robert Johansson, who brews a good Svalbard pilsner, came up here as a coal miner. Skull. Skull. In 28 years, he's adjusted to the long polar nights, months with no sunlight. So what is this appeal with being up here? Uh, well, uh, many people are trying to uh, explain what it is. Uh, uh, the nearest I can tell you, it's uh, like to be being a little bit in love. I kind of got starstruck when I entered. Starstruck? Yeah. By Svalbard? Yeah. Muna Barlian calls the draw to this place polar fever. Do you need some information? She works in the local tourism office where she fields a lot of questions about the vault. They ask about entering the seed vault to actually see how it's like, all the seeds, all the richness it represents. Yeah. Alas, tourists are not allowed inside the air-conditioned vault, which holds more than half a billion seeds from 930,000 varieties, and which as of a few weeks ago now includes the Richelli's pepper seed. The Iowa Bank packed up the duplicate seed, and we were in Svalbard to watch it be placed into the vault. All the seeds in the seed vault have taken a similar kind of journey. I think a lot of people would say, wow, this is incredible that there are all of these seeds up in Svalbard, good idea, but it probably doesn't really affect me personally. Oh, I think um, it, it clearly affects everyone. I mean, we're losing right now something like $160, $70 billion a year just in our wheat crop globally just because of the temperature anomaly that we have in the world, the hotter temperatures. So we're going to need, um, and plant breeders are working on, heat-resistant varieties. So we might not notice it right now, but all these different conditions are affecting our today's food supplies. And the answers might be in that seed vault? Absolutely. The answers are in the seed vault. If we have any answers, that's where we're going to find them. A place where history is saved to protect our collective future. Coming up... I feel great. Me too. But I feel tremendous. In search of the fountain of youth. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. April 2nd, 1513, 504 years ago today. The day three ships commanded by Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon arrived at a spot on the east coast of Florida where a small landing party went ashore. Eight years later, Ponce de Leon returned to Florida for a more thorough exploration, reputedly including a search for the so-called Fountain of Youth, a miraculous spring whose waters could reverse aging. Modern scholarship has found no evidence that Ponce de Leon actually believed such a myth. And in any case, all he encountered on his return was a battle with a Native American tribe that left him dead from an arrow wound. As for Florida, it became a Spanish colony until 1819, when it was acquired by the United States. Statehood followed in 1845. 
And though no fountain of youth has ever been found in the Sunshine State, that doesn't mean millions haven't tried. Florida's warm temperatures have long attracted retirees from up north looking to extend their active years. The dream of regained youth was further popularized in the 1985 film Cocoon, in which a group of old friends plunged into a swimming pool containing mysterious and rejuvenating cocoons from outer space. I feel great. Me too. But I feel tremendous. I'm ready to take all the world out. All fiction, of course. And far too late, in any event, to have extended the life of Juan Ponce de Leon. I don't think it's so much magic as the ability to tell a story. An audience with the queen of suspense just ahead. Take a look at the complete body of work of author Mary Higgins Clark, the queen of suspense. She's granted an audience to a woman who's no stranger to mystery, correspondent Erin Moriarty of 48 Hours. You'd never guess to look at her, but this sweet church-going mother and grandmother has a very dark side. I mean, do you have any idea of how many people have died at your hands? Well, at least one a book. <laughs> one a book. <laughs> and we're talking about 52 books and counting. She is, of course, Mary Higgins Clark, the writer that many consider the queen of suspense. At 89 years of age, her dark imagination continues to fuel bestsellers. Her latest mystery, All By Myself Alone, will be released this week by Simon & Schuster, a subsidiary of CBS. What is the fascination with murder? Well, there was Adam and Eve... They had two kids, Cain and Abel, and one killed the other. So it's been in our very nature since day one. A stranger is watching. Cradle will fall, I remember that one. Her stories are pure fiction, but Higgins Clark gets much inspiration from true life. I used to go to trials a lot. You can get more out of a trial and the sadness in it and the poignancy in it than you could ever imagine. The sadness and poignancy of ordinary lives is a common theme. That's me. Something Mary Higgins learned early. Joseph, Mary, and John. Growing up with two brothers in the Bronx in New York during the Depression. That's when my father came over on the ship. Right here? Luke Higgins. And your father, Irish immigrant? Irish immigrant. And he had a bar and grill, a successful one before everything went sour. But he died at 54 of a heart attack because the business went bad, and that's what killed him. She was only 11 years old. It's a heartbreak. I think any time one parent goes, it's never the same. You're flying on one wing. Forced to work odd jobs to help support her family, she imagined one day she'd have a career as a writer. I always thought I would make it. I was a telephone operator after school. Hotel Shelton, good afternoon. And if I got downtown early enough, I would walk past Fifth Avenue and pick out the clothes I would have when I was a successful writer. At 22, she married Warren Clark, a boy from the neighborhood, who proposed to her on their very first date, and she began sending short stories to magazines. She still has the rejection letters, 40 of them. This one was my favorite, though. We are reluctantly forced, purely <laughs> as a matter of timing, to decline your offering of this story to us at this time. That's a very nice way to turn it Oh, that it down. was the nicest I ever got. There was one, Mrs. Clark, your stories are light, slight, and trite. That would hurt my feelings. I thought I'll get you, girl. Making her writing pay off became a necessity when history repeated itself and her own husband suddenly died. She was 37 years old with five children to support. Higgins Clark, who had to pawn her jewelry to pay bills, began writing radio scripts for a living 
and novels on the side. Her first, a romantic novel about George Washington and his wife Martha, did not sell well. But her second book, Where Are the Children, was the big difference. And how did that come about? Well, I looked at my bookshelves, and that's when I realized I had so many suspense novels. Where Are the Children was a hit. I think I was 43 when that book came out. So you weren't an overnight success. No, dear heart, I was not an overnight success by any stretch. She got her first book contract and was able to buy back the jewelry she pawned and more. It became fun when I started to be successful to get a piece of jewelry to remind myself that I had worked hard. She now has quite a jewelry collection, considering that nearly every book over more than 40 years has been a bestseller. Where Are the Children Having Been the Big Breakthrough is obviously very dear because it made all the difference in my life when that one came out. I read that it is in its 75th printing. Is that right? Yes, yes it is, because it just keeps going. And so does Mary Higgins Clark. She is remarried and lives on four acres in New Jersey in a home complete with an elevator that opens into her writer's studio. Murder and mayhem may still drive her plots, but at the heart of each book is a character much like the author herself, a hero who turns adversity into advantage while keeping her readers on the edge of their seats. When your book is coming out, do you still feel some nervousness? Will my readers like it as much as they have in the past? Oh, of course, because I have never taken a reader for granted. Never. So each book is the best I can write under these circumstances, and then pray God that it goes over well. Next, In Memoriam. It happened this past week, the death of two artists of very different talents. Gilbert Baker created the rainbow banner of the gay rights movement. His original design of eight colored stripes first flew at a gay rights parade in San Francisco in 1978. And it rose to even greater prominence later that year, following the assassination of gay rights pioneer Harvey Milk. The eight stripes were eventually reduced to the current six, each color expressing a different sentiment, starting at the top with red for life, all the way down to violet for the human spirit. A flag, he once said, is a way of proclaiming your visibility, saying, this is who I am. Gilbert Baker was 65. We also learned of the death of Jack Ziegler, a cartoonist for The New Yorker for more than 40 years. Ziegler contributed more than 1,600 cartoons in his career, each one a small masterpiece of irony and wit that demanded close attention to both the artwork and the caption. Jack Ziegler was 74. It gets easier, yeah. Still to come, Bob Schieffer chats with Willie Nelson. But first... You think that I'm in a mental institution. Because for like 30 minutes, I just sit there and go, Gina, Gina. Alec Baldwin on his latest role. Huge Gina. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Chris, I'm going to start this debate in the quietest voice possible. <laughs> in the past, I have been big and loud, but tonight, I am a sweet little baby Trump. Alec Baldwin has been getting plenty of attention for his portrayal of President Trump on Saturday Night Live, a show he knows very well indeed, as he tells Rita Braver for our Sunday Profile. 
What do you want to know? I want to know everything. I want to. I want to know the secrets of Saturday Night Live. They're made from a secret sweaty family recipe. <laughs> no one can resist my sweaty balls. You know what's funny about the show is no matter how many times you host the show, you are not, in mafia terms, a made man, a made member, <laughs> unless you were in the cast of the show. I love things that are great. Made member or not, Alec Baldwin has hosted Saturday Night Live a record 17 times since 1990. This is the second time that I've been asked to host Saturday Night Live, and this is my 17th time. Thank you. He's earned his place on the SNL Wall of Fame. There I am a million years ago in a dark hair. Oh my look gosh, at me. Look at that. Look at how sweet I look. Was that deceptive? No. <laughs> no, I was so sweet. But sweet is probably not how you describe the portrayal everybody's talking about. Google, what is ISIS? <laughs> I am so excited to live in the White House. I'm even going to have a little pet, like all the presidents do. Bill Clinton had socks, Barack Obama had bow, and I'll have Paul Ryan. This is where the se- this, this is, is where it really happened. This is where That's Trump is made. Sometimes it's different colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all add color or change. We follow by what he's doing. Yeah. When you do the Trump face, they're not putting stuff on your face to do that, are they? That's the face that Trump insisted I make. It was no one choice. When I said Trump, he was like very angry and very pissed off all the time. Never happy. Looks like he's constipated. Your country's compassion will not be forgotten. No, 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 no refugees. America first. Australia sucks. Your reef is failing. Prepare to go to war. Baldwin says he practices a lot just before he takes the stage. And I sit in a chair, and you think that I'm in a mental institution. Because for like 30 minutes, I just sit there and go, Gina, 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 Gina. Have you gotten mostly a positive response or... Do people go after you because they're Trump fans? 60 to 75% of the people that encounter me treat me like I was Jonas Salk and I cured <laughs> polio. They walk up to me and go, my God, thank you. My, I can't thank you enough. That's what you're doing is so important. Now 59, Alec Baldwin was just a boy when he developed his gift for mimicry. I learned all my accents from Mel Blanc. Remember Bugs Bunny? Every little breeze seems to whisper Louise, the birds in the trees. Today, Baldwin spends as much time as possible in East Hampton, Long Island. This is my home. This has been my legal residence since uh, 1987. This fashionable beach town is just 75 miles, but a far cry from suburban Massapequa, Long Island, where he grew up. As he details in his new memoir, Nevertheless, Baldwin was set on making it, not as an actor, but as a lawyer. You're very clear that being financially stable was always a big deal for you, given your upbringing. That that was, I think, glaringly and clearly the one big problem for my parents. Six children. Six children. Yeah, my dad was a teacher. I I think my dad saved his first pay stub from work, his first year teaching. He was paid $4,400. Alec Baldwin started out as a political science major at George Washington University in D.C., but decided to transfer to New York University to study acting. My mother screamed at me for like a half an hour when I said I was not going to go to law school. And when I explained to my parents that going to NYU would cost them less money because of the loans I got from NYU, my father said, let's hear him out. (laughs) He started getting work even before he finished college. You liked acting once you started doing it. Six months went by, and I thought, this is really not easy to do. It is challenging. It isn't frivolous. And, I, and gradually, month after month after month, I became more enamored of it. But he also confesses that he became enamored of cocaine and alcohol. I found an answer. A way out of the trouble that I And while a cast member on the hit TV series, Knott's Landing... You've been bad, but now you have to be punished. He hit an all-time low. 
You write about a really harrowing day and night in which you essentially overdosed and almost right. died. Right, right, 19. I did not know that about you. Well, I didn't really talk about it that much. That's a profound part of my life that affected my life was giving up drinking and taking drugs so early on. I was 26 when I got sober. But there's still been plenty of drama. Baldwin's book delves into his stormy first marriage to actress Kim Basinger and an infamous voicemail he left for their daughter, Ireland. You don't have the brains or the decency as a human being. I don't give a damn that you're 12 years old or 11 years old. The two made up long ago. Then there's the 2013 incident when Baldwin was accused falsely, he says, of using a homophobic slur when a paparazzo got too close to his current wife, Ilaria, and their baby. Baldwin says writing about it all was a learning experience. What was the biggest thing you learned? Uh, that's, um, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> is that uh, uh, the past is the past. I, 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 I truly bury my past with this book. I never want to talk about the past anymore. But what a past it's been. Baldwin has appeared in scores of plays, TV shows, and films. Put that coffee down. It's time. In the memoir, he showers praise on co-stars like Anthony Hopkins. I'm telling you, you don't have to do it. The hell I don't. You know that I do. Look at this place. Michelle Pfeiffer. Everything we wear, everything we eat, everything we own fell off a truck. Shh. Get easy, baby. I have a young wife. And Meryl Streep. I am having sex with my old wife. My old, you know, ex. I didn't mean old. But he goes after some pretty big targets, too. He questions Harrison Ford's acting skills and Oliver Stone's directing. Are you afraid of making enemies with this book? No. The better way to to uh, uh, to frame what you're talking about, uh, if I may, is that I try to you know kiss and slap in equal measure. And a lot of those kisses go to the team on Thirty Rock, the NBC sitcom that won Baldwin two Emmys and three Golden Globes. Cookie in the middle of the day. I gave blood. Does that burn calories? Baldwin credits his success to producer Lorne Michaels, co-star Tina Fey, and the show's writers. Why are you wearing a tux? It's after six. What am I, a farmer? I might have been funny to some degree, but they were really funny. And they taught me. I, I learned so much from them. I write in the book, I say that when this show ended, this was my high school graduation. But these days, Alec Baldwin says his career takes second place to his family. He has three young children with his 33-year-old wife, Alaria, a yoga and fitness expert. Where are you, bud? Hi! Who dropped by our interview with their son, Raphael. He's like, I don't want to be on TV like my sister, Carmen. Hey, why are you, bud? She's a lot younger than I am. She could have married a lot of different people. And I'm very grateful and very lucky. And we have three kids, and that is the only thing I care about now. We believe in Hillary Clinton. Baldwin does have another interest, politics. An outspoken liberal, he's toyed with the idea of running for office. Would you ever consider no. running for president? You no. wouldn't. No, 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 no. A Baldwin-Trump race would be right, a right. lot of fun. Well, no, but, well, but I, think it, I think it would be a lot of fun, actually. Now that you say that, maybe I'll reconsider that. But I've got little kids, and that would be, that, that would, I would never see them. Your commander-in-chief wants to say a word. And while he says he doesn't know how long he'll continue to play President Trump... I love you, Mike. You're the reason I'm never going to get impeached. Right now, Alec Baldwin is having the time of his life. Another great retweet. And all you have to do is just go and make the face. And people go hysterical crying. Or you have to just suggest the voice. I go, ladies and gentlemen... And people just cackle laughing. So it's become a big deal. So basically, it's pretty good to be you these days. It's very good. Ahead, 
A toast to the falcon. Say hello to Thor the falcon. Hello, Thor. Along with his trainer, Andy Simmons. You may not know that falcons are sentinels watching over our vineyards. John Blackstone has sent us a dispatch from California wine country. It's no wonder Jack London once wrote about California wine country, I have everything to make me glad I'm alive. The rolling hills, the endless blue skies, and the perfect weather. It's a nature lover's paradise. But all that nature can be a problem. That's what we're guarding against here. Just ask Ramsgate Vineyard Manager Ned Hill. Deer, rabbits, coyotes, raccoons, foxes, birds, you, you name it, stuff, uh, grapes are tasty when they get ripe. And so, like any cash crop, grapes need protection. And here, Bo Bastion is the muscle. Armed with a noisy motorcycle and a determined terrier named Gus, Bastion patrols the grounds. Atta boy! But perhaps the most important on, member on, of his security on. team is the one who patrols the skies. This is Zook. And uh, Zook is a male Jir Peregrine Falcon. Zook is here to protect against starlings. I'm just looking over there. Is this, what, what's this coming across here those, now? Those are starlings right there. Hey, hey! If hen houses have foxes, vineyards have starlings. European starlings, an invasive species that first appeared in Northern California in the 1930s. As the vineyards grew, they spread out like a picnic lunch for the birds big flocks like that come into a field, they're voracious and they can take care of stuff pretty quick. At first, Ramsgate tried the traditional methods like noisemakers, colored tape and netting. None of it worked well. And I just figured there had to be a better way because I was getting frustrated. I was getting frustrated with the amount of time and effort that we were putting into to doing this bird netting. Even though it was somewhat successful, the birds were still pecking through it. So Hill brought in reinforcements. This is Larry. This is Larry. Larry Bird. Larry Bird. He doesn't look so big and scary. He doesn't when he's sitting, but birds aren't designed for sitting on the ground. But when he's in flight, he's pretty scary. Hill hired Kathleen Teagan and her apprentice, Bo, to help protect his crop. What do these birds think when they see a falcon? Well, in nature, falcons are prone to hunt other flying birds. And those flying birds are prone to know that when a falcon is flying, that it's hunting. So when those birds see a falcon in flight, they know they're being hunted. Tegan's company, Tactical Avian Predators, also puts falcons to work at airports and golf courses that have bird problems. Why does it work? <laughs> um, falconry abatement works because it's, it's nature. We're not doing anything different than what happens in nature. We're using nature against nature. And vineyard manager Ned Hill says it's a pretty good matchup. Can you quantify how much better this has made things? I think it's a solid 50%. Which translates to saving about $250,000 a year in production. The lack of yield that we would get because the birds are physically eating the berries, the compromised clusters that come in that we need to sort through and get rid of, there's a 50% difference now uh, having the falcon workforce. Because falcons can be dangerous, they're highly regulated. It's illegal to possess a falcon, a bird of prey. You actually must be in possession of a permit issued by the federal government. To become a licensed falconer like Tegan can take years. You undergo a two-year apprenticeship to become a falconer, and then at 10 years you become a master falconer. Ha! Ha! Bo Bastion is serving his apprenticeship with Tegan's company in the hopes that one day he'll be a master falconer himself. And you get to watch all your animals doing their job and they love their job. At the end of the day when you're putting your birds up and you've done a good job protecting a vineyard, that feels good, you know? It's all cool stuff. In case you were wondering, no starlings were harmed in the making of this story. The falcons just scare the birds, chase them away, then return for a reward. Wow. A tasty piece of previously frozen quail. Coming up, seeing the light. Oh, they say the seeing is believing. And seeing sure made a believer of the fellow Steve Hartman is taking us to meet. 
Inside this ice shanty in northern Minnesota... Oh, oh, here we go. There's a fish out of water. Oh, yeah, look at that. And I'm not talking about the walleye. Is that a keeper or is that a tosser? Chris Ingram, dressed in his pea coat and snow boots with the tags still on, appears equally out of place. Yeah. Chris works for the Washington Post. And the only reason he's out here is because of an article he wrote in 2015. The article was about a seemingly innocuous U.S. Department of Agriculture study that ranked counties in the country based on scenery and climate. And in that article, Chris concluded, the absolute worst place to live in America is, drum roll please, Red Lake County, Minnesota. And that was it. Yeah, so I published a story. Yeah. Story goes up at like 9.32 on a Monday. By 9.37, the hate mail started rolling in. Like on social media, and it was just fast and furious. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And all of it from the same zip code. You get some people take it personally. Yeah, we took offense. How does this person have a clue? He obviously didn't know what he was talking about. Just about everyone in town took a shot at the messenger. Except Jason Brumwell, who took a different tack. I wanted him to come here and and see it for himself. You know, put his money where his mouth is, I guess. So Jason invited Chris for a visit. And Chris agreed. Flew out here for his first visit in August of 2015. So I pull up to the courthouse and I get out of the car. And there is a marching band playing. A marching band? Yes, a marching band. I was like, wow, there were no pitchforks. I was really happy. No torches, no nothing. Just a bunch of beaming, smiling people. And the weird thing about the trip, when I got back, like I couldn't stop thinking about the place. Which brings us to the most unbelievable part. At the time, Chris and his wife, Brianna, were not happy living outside D.C. Oh, you got your gear back. They hated the long commutes and high cost of living. So last year, they packed up their twin toddlers and moved to, you guessed it, Red Lake County. But this was the worst place in America. I believe the phrase was absolute worst place to live in America. (laughs) Yes, that's what the spreadsheet said, okay? And so coming out here and getting that ground truth, that kind of changed my perspective on it. And the data didn't factor in the people. It did not factor in the people, no. Hey, Chris. Today, Chris still writes for The Post, but he works from home, giving him lots more time to spend with his family and all those internet trolls he now considers friends. They really do love him here. Because they know it's easy for some reporters to lob judgments and generalizations. But it takes real integrity to make this kind of correction. Next, a battlefield off the Carolina coast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We're taking a dive into history this morning. 75 years after a life-or-death battle off our eastern shore. Mark Strassman leads the way. Let's slide it, bud. This story begins with a dive into history at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Topside, topside, this is Nomad. Request permission to open vents and dive. It'll take about 10 minutes for this two-man submersible named Nomad to carry pilot Randy Holt and me 715 feet down to the ocean floor. Down we go. Sonar guides us through the darkness below until we see this. Confirming we have a visual on the target. It's the German U-boat U-576, which has rested here since July 1942. The submarine was sunk while hunting cargo ships headed for Europe in the war against Hitler's Third Reich. This U-boat had vanished, lost to history, until researchers discovered its location two years ago. So so the submarine is lying on its starboard side. Uh, We're looking at the keel all along here. We were there last August as human eyes saw U-576 for the first time in 74 years. There's the anchor right there. Its bow is unmistakable. You can make out the deck gun. A school of grouper guard the sub's conning tower. You can even spot the periscope inside. The circular pad, which is called the Winter Garden, right in the middle of it is the aft deck gun. Noah. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration photographed and scanned the sub to create a 3D model. Here's why. 
U-576, where we are now, sits just 35 miles from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. A relic of a little-known chapter in World War II history. Vitally needed tankers are hit, burned, and sunk. Victims of prowling enemy submarines. NOAA Superintendent David Alberg studies maritime battles. Within like three weeks of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Germans were beginning to sink ships off the East Coast. That's the war coming right into our backyard. Precisely. In 1942, U-boats dominated the East Coast shipping lanes. More than 80 cargo ships were sunk and 1,600 lives lost in the waters off North Carolina alone. And you could look right out here and see battles. Absolutely. You'd find oil on the beaches, you'd find uh, debris, you'd see the fires at night, and unfortunately sometimes they'd even find victims, remains that had washed over from some of these merchant seamen and sailors that were lost. Most Americans then never learned the scope of the attacks, but coastal residents knew. The War Advertising Council helped teach them one of the war's most enduring sayings. So this notion of loose lips sink ships. If you talk, somebody could die because of your careless uh, conversations, really began to gel with the American public. 93-year-old Louis Siegel remembers loose lips really could sink ships. In 1942, he was an 18-year-old cadet midshipman with a Merchant Marine Academy. U-boats attacked his convoy three times. We met him on board the research vessel, the Baseline Explorer. When you watched that first ship in particular go down, it must have brought the reality of the threat oh, yeah. home to you. All right. I guess when you're that young, you know you're going to live forever. And you have, which yeah. is the good news. Right. Dive one will be in Nomad with Randy piloting. Underwater archaeologist Joe Hoyt is leading the expedition to study not just U-576, but also its target, the cargo ship Bluefields. Both sank on July 15, 1942, in a convoy battle lasting just minutes. Today, predator and prey lie side by side on the ocean floor, only 240 yards apart. Both of them together, that's really what's unique about this particular area, is that, that we have the remnants of both elements of a convoy battle, and it really encapsulates that idea of a battlefield. Everyone aboard Bluefields survived, but no one knew for sure what happened to the crew of U-576 until the expedition team saw this. All of the U-boat's hatches are sealed. Forty-five German sailors are entombed inside. There's a, one particular picture of these guys in the conning tower and they're looking through binoculars and one of them's got sort of a goofy pair of glasses on and that guy's binoculars are in there. This guy's glasses are probably inside this steel tube that we found. Shipwrecks like these represent how close World War II came to mainland America, which is why NOAA is working to make this graveyard part of a national marine sanctuary. When I see this, this area, whether I'm on the surface or we're down underneath, I see Gettysburg before it was designated as a national park. I see Shiloh, I see Antietam. This is our opportunity to, to say publicly and acknowledge that the people that fought here off the coast of North Carolina and the U.S. East Coast, that effort is appreciated and it will be remembered. It's a chance to give these guys a salute. Absolutely. A salute that's well-deserved and 75 years late. Events like last night are kind of rare, but they're nice when they happen. Willie Nelson, Bob Schieffer, on the town, next. <laughs> on the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Hawley. Willie Nelson has been on the road again and again and again ever since he released that song back in 1980. And a song on his newest album proves he has no intention of hanging it up anytime soon. A point he underscores to our Bob Schieffer for the record. I woke up still not dead again today. The 
Now, how in the world did you you come up with that song? Oh, I don't know. I woke up still not dead again today. I've been killed several times throughout the years, and so I just thought I'd write something funny about it. It's easy for Willie Nelson to laugh off the greatly exaggerated rumors of his demise. Closing in on his 84th birthday, he's on the road again, performing, writing music. You think you're still a young bull rider Till you look at the mirror A new album out later this month, God's Problem Child, is his 110th, give or take, with songs like Still Not Dead and Old Timer. There's a theme here. This is about the autumn of life. Is that hard for you to think about? No. (laughs) No. You remember uh, uh, one of those deep thinkers, a guy named Seneca, you ever hear him? Yeah. He said you should look at death and comedy with the same countenance. And I believe that. The autumn of your life, and I'm right there with you, buddy, uh, it's like the springtime in anybody else's life. I mean, you're, you're at the, the top of your powers, I would say, right now. Everything's you're going writing songs. Yeah. You know, I think age is just a number. It's the way you, you know, I've heard it all my life. It's not how old you are, it's how you feel. And uh, I've been lucky with health-wise and uh, career-wise, everything, and uh, uh, I haven't really got anything to bitch about. <laughs> it wasn't always so. Gee, ain't it funny how time slips away. Early on, Nelson left his native Texas for Nashville. He made a name for himself writing hits for others. Crazy. Like Patsy Cline. Or thinking that my love could hold you. Nashville liked his songs, but his singing, not so much. I heard that you became so dejected at one point that you went out and laid down in the middle of the street hoping that a car would run over. In Nashville. <clears throat> in Nashville. Of course, it was midnight and there wasn't a lot of traffic. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no car came No by. car got me, though. But uh, what were those days like? Oh, they were wild and crazy, you know. I was going through, you know, one relationship after another, one divorce after another, and those things uh, will make you write songs. If you're a songwriter, that's where you get your material from all your headaches and heartaches. Nelson went back to Texas, changed his look, and changed his tune. Less Grand Ole Opry and more Good Old Boy, spiced with a little hippie and redneck. Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be with his friend Waylon Jennings came a new raw sound. Outlaw country. Let them be doctors and lawyers and Through the years, Nelson's music came to transcend genre. He's won eight Grammys and honors he never imagined. Little things I should have said and done. What is it that sets your songs apart? I mean, somebody said one time, country music is three chords and the truth. But you were always on my mind. It's three quarters of the way true, you know. uh, you can have more than three chords. Well, you have a lot more chords. <laughs> but the truth matters. When the evening sun goes down. What causes you to come up with these songs that people say, well, that's right? I don't know. I'm just writing what I'm thinking. It's a nightlife. Ain't no good life. But it's my life. If it comes out pretty good, I'll write it down somewhere and come up with a melody to it. But I'm just writing what I'm thinking off the top of my head, really. He writes as he feels, his emotions, his inner thoughts, and, and he writes it down. He's really a poet. 
Willie's big sister, Bobby, has been looking out for him and playing piano with him since they were kids being raised by their grandma in Abbott, Texas. Cause she's a good-hearted woman. She's still there every night he takes the stage. And now two of his sons, Lucas and Micah, often perform with him. That's the greatest feeling in the world, to be up there with your kids and know that they're doing well and they're good and you can be proud of what they're doing. That's just the best feeling there is. When he's not traveling on his bus to one of the more than 100 shows he still does every year, Willie splits his time between a home in Maui, where he hangs with friends like Woody Harrelson. Ah, looky there, that's 20. And his ranch outside Austin, complete with an old west town he named Luck. You know, I just live right up there. Yeah. When we drop by, 3,000 fans fill the town for the Luck reunion, the brainchild of Willie's great niece, Bobby's granddaughter, Ella. I'd grown up on this property. Basically, this is my backyard. So what is the Luck reunion? The Luck Reunion started as a one-day event celebrating singers and songwriters who were kind of forging their path in the same vein as Willie is, just, you know, doing their own thing without compromise. A lot of people get to hear a lot of good music and hang out, have a good time, so it's turned out to be real good. In the twilight glow, I see her. Things didn't always turn out real good for Willie. Blue eyes crying in the rain. Back in the 90s, there was the little matter of back taxes he owed Uncle Sam. I got to say, you're the only guitar picker from Abbott, Texas that I ever knew or heard of <laughs> that owed the federal government $32 million. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of funny when you think about it. <laughs> well, I'm sure it wasn't funny to you at the time. Uh, he worked it out exactly and paid it off. So why didn't you ever declare bankruptcy? I don't believe in that. You know, I believe if I owe some people some money, I want to pay them. I didn't come here and I ain't leaving. So don't sit around and cry. Just roll me up and smoke me when I die. Nelson's been arrested more than once for possession of marijuana. I want to ask you a little about... Uh, about pot. Uh, you got one? No. <laughs> These days, he's in the cannabis business in places where it's legal. Well, it's all going to pot, whether we like it or not. Why have you always been such an advocate? For myself, it's good for me. It keeps me from going off and doing crazy things. I can relax and, and play some music and uh, sit around and visit and act like a grown-up, I think. So, Annie, I've heard Willie say that uh, you married a better man than his other wives. <laughs> no, I did. I, I got him after, after everybody else sort of trained him. Annie Nelson is Willie's fourth wife, but they've been together more than 31 years. What's it like to be married to Willie Nelson? It's not boring. <laughs> it's never boring. He has a lot of energy. It's, is, I think his goal is to... There's 23 years between us, but I think his goal is to wear me out so that we're both the same age. <laughs> <laughs> On the road again, going places that I've never been. You think you'll ever retire? What do you want me to quit? All I do is play music and a little golf, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to quit either one of those. On the road again. For Willie Nelson, the way to stop wearing out is to speed up. On the road again. Andy Rooney said one time, said, we don't ask to get old, we just get old. Yeah. And then he said, and if you're lucky, you may get old too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to get on the road again. You and I have been pretty lucky. Yeah, we have, very lucky. We're still here. We woke up still not dead again. 
I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. 